Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in Canada. This year, 2019, marks the 75th anniversary of the election of North America's first socialist government. In 1944, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the party that spawned the New Democratic Party, came to power in Saskatchewan. Led by Tommy Douglas, the CCF introduced innovation after innovation, including implementing the country's first universal hospital plan in 1947, and 15 years later, in 1962, the first universal medical care plan. These became the models for what would be adopted throughout Canada. The backstory to this innovation is the remarkable group of individuals who were attracted to work in Saskatchewan during the 20 years that the CCF held power. In fact, these brilliant individuals were sometimes divided on both means and ends, and this was nowhere more evident than in healthcare. Our author today tells us the story of a committed group of radical doctors and policy advisors who not only wanted to change the system of financing healthcare, but wanted to transform its delivery from a private business to a public service. This story has finally been told by Esalt Jones in her book, Radical Medicine, The International Origins of Socialized Medicine in Canada, published by ARP an independent publisher based in Winnipeg. Dr. Jones is a professor of history at the University of Manitoba, where she joins us from her office. Esalt, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be able to interview someone on a subject which has preoccupied me for years, the history of Canadian Medicare. Can you tell us what got you interested in this subject in the first place? I'm a historian of health and disease, so I've always had a real interest in um, a number of different aspects of healthcare history. I've also been in, you know, at various times in my life, interested in working class and labor history and the history of the left more generally. And I was really interested in what were the sort of early ideas that came sort of from the bottom up in uh, left-wing politics in Canada having to do with what people exactly wanted from a public health system. And when we talk about Medicare, what does that specifically mean historically? And what I found quite early on in my research, this book took, took me quite a long time to write, was that there was this similar set of ideas about how to change health care that emerged all over the Atlantic world in the years between the late 1920s, 1930s, until the early 1950s. So that's really the period that I cover in the book. And this is what I call the health center model in my study, which was commonly shared in a surprising number of locales by a really interesting group of people. And I was drawn to explain how it was that that movement emerged in Canada and its effect on our own Medicare history. Now, in my view, there are really two groups among these advisors in the Douglas government. There was a socialist group that urged more immediate and radical change, and then there was a more of a social democratic or what some might call a reformist group that were quite incremental in their advice. You focus mainly on the first group, 
So can you tell us who were these people, where did they come from, and what was the nature of their relationship with the Douglas government? The most significant early um, advisors after 1944 that were brought in to talk about health care policy in Saskatchewan were Henry Sigarist, who was at that time a professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, United States. Uh, he was well known as an advocate of what he referred to as state medicine in the U.S., as well as um, well known as an author of a study of medicine in the Soviet, in the Soviet Union. Uh, he was part of a survey commission that was appointed by Douglas basically immediately after the election to recommend changes and reforms. And there was a group of them who traveled around Saskatchewan, uh, visiting different communities and talking to people. And that group also included um, someone from Winnipeg, from Manitoba, a Jewish physician named Mindel Cherniak Sheps, who became for a short time uh, Tommy Douglas's closest health advisor, and she was the actual framer of the very earliest pieces of health legislation after 1944. Uh, so, f so between fall of 1944 and spring of 1946, roughly. Can you tell us a bit about her, um, where she grew up, how she grew up, and why she decided to move to Saskatchewan and do what she did? Mendel had grown up in the sort of radical Jewish left in North End Winnipeg, which was a really vibrant political community, although especially in the context of World War II, was less sectarian than some historians, I think, have tried to paint them as. Uh, we want to remember that broader context of the struggle against fascism and the way in which eventually this united sort of elements of the political left. But she came from a very political family. Um, her parents had emigrated from Odessa in the early 20th century and placed a lot of emphasis on uh, professional education for both her and her brother, who um, was Saul Cherniak, who was... Um, the first uh, NDP finance minister in Manitoba in the Ed Schreier government. So her clan was um, extensively involved in the CCF. So on the social democratic side, um, if you like, of that, of that Jewish community. I think in part what brought her to Saskatchewan, she, she had set her sights, I think, on an elected political career. She'd been elected as a school trustee in Winnipeg in 1942 and had really already made a name for herself as an advocate for, for example, equality for female teachers in the school system. I think it was World War II that opened a door for her um, to go to Saskatchewan because so many uh, men were mobilized in the military, including her husband, who was also a physician. I mean, these were both exceptional individuals purely in the sense that they had gone through medical school during a period of Jewish quota based in, you know, anti-Semitic anxieties about um, Jewish people. And, of course, in Mindel's case, also a female quota. Uh, so they were brilliant people. Um, and I, I think if it weren't for World War II, it might have been Cecil who was hired um, to serve on the survey commission. But because he was still in the Army, it was Mindel who went. Um, so it is something of a remarkable story in a lot of ways. Um, 
And eventually, the both of them ended up working in Saskatchewan um, for a short period of time. Yes, it was a very short period of time. Why uh, did she move so quickly um, out of Saskatchewan or leave Saskatchewan? And why was she so disappointed with her experience in the province? That question took me a while to come up with uh, an answer for. Um, it wasn't really until the tail end of my research that I found the documentary evidence that would help me sort it out. In a way, they left because um, Cecil wanted to go to graduate school. So he wanted to go and do uh, a master's in public health at Yale. And we want to remember that neither one of them had formal training as health policy advisors or as administrators. And they wanted to get that training. And Cecil would go on to be a pioneer in health organization research. Uh, there's still a research center named after him at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So they wanted to be trained. And the story is that they expected to return after Cecil had got his uh, graduate degree and then were sort of told not to come back. The general sense that I get from that, although I don't know, I don't know the answer to why they weren't invited to come back, except to say that relationships between organized medicine and both Mindel and her husband were difficult. I still think many of those fights that were already emerging in Saskatchewan, which later reemerged in 1962, were unavoidable. The extent to which Politically, Douglas wanted to avoid a public fight with organized medicine, determined, I think, what happened to the ships and their relationship with government. They wanted to try to make peace. I also think that um, the fact that Mendel was a woman made a big difference. I have a hard time believing that as a female Jewish physician, she was accorded the respect by the local medical representatives that she probably should have received. It was a tough slog to put a woman in charge of such an important policy platform. And I think to some extent, the broader context was also working against her. Right. And it, there was this significant conflict with the medical profession. And uh, it's uh, what, what's so interesting, of course, is the roots of what happened then in the 1960s were already quite apparent, as you have written, uh, mm -hmm. in this very early period. And um, the, the main conflict between the idea of a comprehensive health center with salaried doctors versus the private business model of doctors working largely on fee-for-service. Can you describe these three main international policy influences that came to bear when it in terms of the idea of the health center as an alternative to traditional uh, physician practice? Yeah, in, in the book I trace, I guess, the three other geographic locales that I write about are Soviet medicine itself and the influence that the Soviet idea of what they sometimes refer to as the polyclinic or, or the prophylactoria um, and how that percolates outside of the Soviet Union and becomes a kind of model for people who are very frustrated with the current discussion about the role of government in healthcare provision. 
So the Soviet model comes to Canada in multiple ways. And in the book, I do um, write about Soviet travelers from Canada, uh, including people like uh, Fred Banting, uh, one of the inventors of insulin, um, and Norman Bethune, who, of course, is famous um, in left circles for his support of the Spanish Civil War and his struggle in uh, China during World War II. You know, those men were very different politically. Banting was not a socialist. He certainly wasn't a socialist or a communist. Bethune becomes a communist. They were one conduit, but there were many others. Um, The other two places that I write about are Britain. And Britain goes through many of the same debates about this health center model of care as happened in Saskatchewan, actually, more or less in the same time period. So it was less that Britain and the NHS were an influence on Saskatchewan than it was that they were struggling with the same issues, Um, the need to satisfy the voices of of the medical profession, um, the need to try to introduce free health care while simultaneously trying to really change the way health care was delivered toward a more locally-based, multidisciplinary, salaried provision, but also a health clinic model that gave lay people quite a lot of control over their health system. The, the struggle between that and what opponents of that wanted was evident in both places. And the other, the other place I talk about is the United States during Roosevelt's New Deal where there were a lot of very interesting healthcare innovations along similar lines. And people in Saskatchewan knew about those. Local people were very well informed about what was going on in healthcare debates across the Atlantic world and were really inspired by it and had, again, this idea of a regionally based health system that started with a small local health center that connected up to uh, more complex forms of health provision in larger centers. And in the United States, it was a lot of this experimentation took place in rural areas because it was organized by um, the New Deal Farm Security Administration. And the senior person at the Farm Security Administration came to work in Saskatchewan in 1946. His name was Fred Mott, a little-known figure who played such an important role in the years between 46 and 51 when he left. And he brought other individuals with him at some point. Yes. Yeah, when he came, he brought Len Rosenfeld with him, And Rosenfeld was part of this sort of circle of physicians and public health experts who wanted to see these progressive, transformative changes. He had worked for a time in Nicaragua setting up a public health system there. Um, Another key player who who wasn't in Saskatchewan until early the 50s was Milton Romer, um, who uh, in the early 50s was actually working at the World Health Organization Romer was eventually pushed out of government health programs in the United States during the Cold War after he was investigated twice. And he ends up in Saskatchewan in the early 50s because the American government took away his passport. 
And so he ends up coming from Geneva to uh, Regina. <laughs> uh, he said, Romer is an especially interesting person who I'd like to do more work on because he's uh, he's also in that you know influence. Many of these guys were influenced. Mostly guys were influenced very heavily by Henry Sigurist. And Sigurist was also a medical historian. He had a very strong commitment to history. Um, and, you know, he, he founded at Johns Hopkins one of the most important journals in medical history um, in the English-speaking world. So, um, and Romer himself was also very historically minded. So they were, they were big-picture thinkers, a lot, of, a lot of these people. Right. Now, most of the uh, historical research and writing is tended to focus on the events of the early 1960s in Saskatchewan, uh, particularly the doctor's strike mm -hmm. when universal medical care coverage was introduced. Um, can you tell us why this earlier period is so significant to what happened in the 1960s? Well... After Douglas became premier, he was in a very significant hurry to get some things accomplished on health care. And he formulated quite an aggressive timeline around the introduction of insurance for hospitalization. And so when the Hospitalization Act was introduced in 1946, it was the first universal public hospital coverage program in North America. And, you know, the landmark nature of that program is probably underappreciated. Um, right. It might have been the first single-payer program in the world at that time. Well, the, the NHS had moved to single-payer around the same time. Well, well um, it wasn't implemented till uh, July of 1948, although it was being planned at that time. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so, and other places, of course, like New Zealand, had been working towards similar programs. Um, it was definitely a very significant event in its own right, but it also had very significant impacts on the evolution of health policy in Saskatchewan. Everything that's going on in health policy in that period is really a moving target, and the Liberal Party federally, of course, had been promising funds for some form of health insurance since that same period. Douglas, I think, anticipated that something would be forthcoming in terms of financial support for provincial insured health services. There was nothing really forthcoming until 1957. So in that intervening period, Douglas was forced to go alone. And so he made this early commitment to hospitalization insurance, which was quite expensive, even though it, there was um, there was a family premium um, or an individual premium. Um, it was modest, but it did contribute to funding the system. But it cost government a lot with no significant support from the federal level. So what ends up happening um, is that we have this, this case where there is significant push just in terms of how the system develops toward resources on hospital care. And hospitalization insurance is immediately extremely popular. And one of the reasons for this, I believe, is because people had, and this is what people like Fred Mott said and Rosenfeld said at the time, people had a lot of need for, to access medical care. And because physicians weren't insured, you couldn't go to a doctor's office. That wasn't covered. 
that was what was covered in 62. People sought care in the hospital because that's where they could get it without having to pay um, significant amounts of money. So usage of the system was immediately very, very high. And a lot of effort went into making this work. And it did work. But the fact that it did work also meant that other aspects of that model, the health center model, were difficult to achieve, um, both for human resources reasons and for financial reasons. As you know, Canadian Medicare has been under fire in recent years. Uh, We hear these debates uh, all of the time. We read them in our newspapers. What lessons can we draw from your history as to the current state of Medicare and the policy debate that swirls around it? Well, there are some things about that period that are really so interesting. And one of them was the engagement of ordinary people in these debates. Uh, There was a grassroots political organization called the State Hospital and Medical League, which isn't the greatest, snazziest name for a social movement. Um, But they just did amazing work, both intellectually and in terms of mobilizing people. And, you know, that that to me is a really important piece of how change happens um, and how we address the issues that are confronting Medicare is, is the very real importance of public involvement, and not just at the level of policy debate, but also at the level of actual decision-making. And I think this, you can see traces of the health center model all through the 20th century, and you can still see them today, as in, you know, the Quebec CLSCs, which until fairly recently had elected boards, ways in which people felt some ownership and in which their own expertise as patients and families in the system were drawn into a political movement. I think that's so important. It it can feel, I think, a bit alienating for ordinary people to try to engage in what now appears to be such a complicated and elite-driven system. And I think that that, you know, that lay knowledge, the lay expertise that's out there needs to be a part of the discussion to a greater extent. Right. Well, thank you so much. Um, My guest today was Esselt Jones. We talked about her book, Radical Medicine, The International Origins of Socialized Medicine in Canada. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and this podcast was recorded at Ryerson University on November 11th, 2019. It was produced by Michael Smith. We look forward to you joining us again.